Listener Production. Hello, happy Friday and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Israel is facing charges of genocide in the International Court of Justice over its slaughter of more than 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza. Many of those killed are children. Israel launched the war in response to the October 7 terrorist attacks last year, where Hamas fighters killed around 1,200 Israeli civilians and kidnapped a further 240. The first public hearing in the case happened in the Netherlands overnight. The briefing's Benson Siebert stayed up to report on the hearings. His interview with Juliet McIntyre, an expert on the International Court of Justice in the second half of this episode. But first, let's get to the latest news headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Friday the 12th of January. Hey, Sasha. Hi, everyone. Well, the Australia Day merchandise issue continues today with a political back and forth igniting after Woolies decided not to stock themed products in the lead up to January 26. Opposition leader Peter Dutton has labelled the move as peddling woke agendas. I think it's an outrage, uh, to be honest, and I, I think people should boycott Woolworths. Uh, Woolworths Group has responded, saying its focus is on food and produce, while Agriculture Minister Murray Watts has slammed Dutton for trying to start a culture war. Peter Dutton is focused on putting the jobs of more than 200,000 workers at risk just so he can score a cheap political point on a radio station. Yeah, so here's the thing. It's not just the Woolworths group who's doing this. Aldi has also said that it's not going to stock Aussie merchandise uh, as part of its uh, weekly specials next week. They're going to be um, promoting things like an anti-snore pillow instead, which I actually think sounds like a fine product. Uh, Kmart has also announced last year that it wouldn't be selling products specific to the public holiday, saying January 26 just means different things to different people. Reconciliation Australia has also weighed into this, Sasha, saying that it welcomes the move by Woolworths, saying we're encouraged to see more and more Australians to take time to re-evaluate what we want our National Day to represent and how we can create a better country. Hasn't this just created a storm in a teacup? Absolutely. I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, We did actually ask you, our listeners, what you thought about uh, the decision by Woolworths to scrap Australia Day merch. We put a poll up on Instagram. uh, And according to your votes, 90% support the move compared to 10% who are against it. So that's what our listeners on Instagram thought. We also had a couple of comments, someone saying uh, it was a great step in the right direction, but we also had someone reach out saying, that it's disgusting and un-Australian. So as ever with these things, Katrina, it divides people and, you know, I just wish we could move away from this sort of, you know, as Murray Watts said, this culture wars stuff and find a day that we can all celebrate. A state of emergency has been declared in Papua New Guinea as the death toll from widespread looting, rioting and destruction climbs to at least 15. Long-running tensions over high unemployment and low wages reached boiling point yesterday when police went on strike following a payroll issue that saw public servants underpaid. Businesses and cars have been torched in the capital, Port Moresby, including warehouses, which did spark fears of impending food and supply shortages in Papua New Guinea. Prime Minister James Marape has given a national address declaring the two-week state of emergency. He's also told residents that the Defence Force is on standby 
with 1,000 troops ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, Now, as I said, this has been simmering away for a while, Katrina, and his political opponents have condemned the leader, saying the buck stops with the Prime Minister, and two MPs have actually resigned as well. So it doesn't look like this is something that's going to blow over quickly. Uh, This is just a further sign of, of some of the issues going on in PNG at the moment. Yeah, and absolutely wild to think that it was a technical glitch in the payroll system which triggered all of this. It, of course, led to police striking for a day and uh, people seized their opportunity and, and started looting shops and committing crimes. Uh, yeah, a lot of extra police reinforcements are being sent in as well. So, uh, yeah, let's hope that situation can calm down at least in the next 24 hours or so. Now, this is an interesting idea. Australia is being urged to start naming heat waves, kind of like we do with cyclones. The idea is it would enable a heat culture where we'd prepare for extreme temperatures in the same way we plan for the arrival of named cyclones. The recommendation comes from a report by Aussie's sustainability non-profit Renew, which has been looking at how heat waves are dealt with around the world. They went to the Spanish city of Seville. Now, there they began naming heat waves in 2022 as a way to increase public awareness of the risks from high temperatures. People there, uh, once that heat wave is named, you know, like Cyclone Jasper or whatever, um, they then understand the steps they need to take to prepare, like cooling their homes early in the morning, then using shading, doing outdoor tasks outside in the hottest parts of the day, staying hydrated, checking on vulnerable community members, you know, in the same way that uh, people in in far north Queensland or in WA or cyclone prone areas, you know, get rid of all their uh, loose furniture and things like that in the backyard and, and take care to prepare for extreme storms. So I think it's an interesting idea, Sasha. Mm, and I think the idea of making people realise, oh, this is serious. It's like when you hear it on the news or Cyclone Jasper, you go, well, it's got a name, it's got to be serious. It's not just a storm, it's Cyclone Jasper. And it does trigger that response in people to get prepared. Uh, Now, of course, 2023 has just been confirmed this week as the hottest on record, driven by human-caused climate change and boosted by El Nino. Now, I do want to point out or shout out, I suppose, to our listeners in Sydney, where I live, uh, it was really warm yesterday and it's actually been declared the muggiest day on record in Sydney. So that is down to the dew point. Now, it reached a high at 11am and when it gets to that, which was about 24 degrees, well, it was 26.7 degrees, anything over 24, the bomb labels it oppressive, uncomfortable for most, and it could induce possible heat stress. So, you know, we're no strangers in Australia to hot weather. It's nothing new, but there's no doubt that heat waves are extremely dangerous and they've actually killed more people in Australia than any other natural hazards. So anything to alert people and make them aware of what's going on so that they can take the right precautions is a great idea, I reckon. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Yeah. And look, before we get into today's deep dive, we did want to do a shout out to one of our listeners, Kerry Sutherland. Now, she commented on our Instagram post from Tuesday's episode about the program that's de-radicalising teenagers uh, who have been influenced by Andrew Tate. So Kerry reached out to us and she asked whether boys would react differently depending on whether a woman delivers the program or a man. So we actually went back to Dina, who we interviewed. Uh, She's the co-founder of The RAP Project, which is going out into schools in the UK and around the world to talk to young boys. 
Her answer was she doesn't know how boys would react to having a man deliver the program, uh, but she says they have responded well to having women present the program so far and that the important thing is whoever speaks to them does it with respect so boys feel heard and understood. So we just wanted to share that message and that update from Dina and from our listener, Kerry. Yeah, thank you so much, Kerry. We actually love hearing from you guys. So um, please don't be shy. Tell us what you think, uh, even if you've got a follow-up question like Kerry did, uh, whether it's on any of our deep dive topics or something we've chatted on in the headlines. And the way you can do that, you can either DM us on Instagram at The Briefing. Uh, you can be sure to follow us there. And also we're on TikTok now, or you can DM any of us. We're all on uh, Instagram. Some of us are on TikTok too. I'm definitely on TikTok. I love TikTok. Hey, thanks, Katrina. Have a fabulous weekend. Next, it's Bensie and Siebert's deep dive into the hearings at the ICJ, which are looking into Israel's actions in Gaza. It's 11.30 on Thursday night in Melbourne. And over the past three hours, lawyers for South Africa have been delivering a devastating case, accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. And let me tell you, it's really hard to hear. Israel says the aim of this war is to destroy Hamas after its massacre of 1,200 Israeli civilians on October 7 and its kidnapping of 240 civilians. But South Africa says the slaughter of more than 23,000 people, most of them women and children, is a deliberate effort by Israel to wipe out all or part of the Palestinian population. South Africa argues you can't cut off food, water, medical supplies, electricity to an entire population, causing starvation if it's simply a manhunt. Its representatives used the phrase concentration camp to describe what Israel has created in Gaza. In other words, they argued, it's genocide. To explain the case and Israel's defence and what might happen next, I'm joined by Juliet McIntyre. She's a lawyer who's appeared before the International Court of Justice and a law lecturer at the University of South Australia. Juliet, thanks so much for joining me. Take us through South Africa's case against Israel. Yeah, so South Africa has brought this case under the Genocide Convention. So that convention has a particular clause in it which says that if two parties to that convention have a dispute about either its application, fulfilment or interpretation, they can bring that dispute to the International Court of Justice. So that's the mechanism that South Africa has used. In doing so, South Africa is accusing Israel of three things, essentially, uh, in an either-or kind of a situation. So either committing genocide or inciting genocide or failing to prevent a genocide from occurring in Gaza. And what are the elements of a charge of genocide? What does South Africa have to prove Israel is doing? So when we get to the merits stage, which it's worth pointing out for your listeners that that's still some years away, this is just an interim hearing and we can come back to that in a moment if you like. But what South Africa is going to have to establish is two things. First of all, that there were genocidal acts that were committed. So these are physical acts, either killing or 
or creating conditions that are so bad, essentially, on the ground that they aren't compatible with life. So those are the genocidal acts. And obviously, South Africa's brought quite a lot of evidence about that. We've, we've seen the military campaign that's going on with our own eyes. But South Africa today at the hearing went into quite a lot of detail about some of the other uh, impacts that uh, Israel's campaign in Gaza has had on the civilian population. But then the second element is a mental element. And this is very, very difficult. So South Africa has to establish that Israel, the state, the Israeli government essentially intends to wipe out in whole or in part the Palestinian population. So not simply that they are responding to the atrocities committed by Hamas in October, but that this is a deliberate campaign to destroy the Palestinian people. Reaching that threshold is always very, very challenging for any state uh, accusing another state of genocide. Is it unusually less challenging than it would otherwise have been because of the statements of several of the ministers and the Prime Minister and members of the Knesset in this case? For example, there's a quote that South Africa raised, which is from the Defence Minister, which describes... Uh, no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel, and that Israel is fighting human animals. Is that a pretty clear demonstration of what South Africa is arguing in this case? Yeah, look, it is, but it is and it isn't, I suppose you might say, because what Israel is probably going to argue tomorrow is that these references, for example, to human animals or references to cutting off food and water are not intended to be references to the Palestinian people in general, but only intended to be references directed at Hamas. Uh, And Israel is probably going to say something along the lines of, it's not our fault that Hamas uses human shields and embeds themselves in the civilian population so that there's huge numbers of civilian casualties or civilian uh, suffering as a result of us trying to wipe out this terrorist organisation. So that's probably the approach. And it is going to be difficult because it's all going to come down to this question of what the court believes the intention was behind those statements. Same with um, Netanyahu's notorious invocation of the, the Amalek. So that, again, is going to turn on quite detailed analysis, I suppose, if you will, of what did he mean exactly? What's the Jewish meaning of Amalek? What did people understand that to mean? So one of the things that South Africa did today was link a lot of video footage of statements that were made by government officials in Israel and then Israeli defence forces on the ground using those statements or chanting those statements or relying on those statements as they were committing these genocidal acts. So what uh, South Africa is contending is that these statements were understood by the Israeli people and by the Israeli military in particular to be uh, a call to act uh, in a genocidal way. So that's the the link there that they're trying to prove. But obviously Israel is going to put up a robust defence to that. Certainly. How does South Africa make the case that this is not simply the horrible term collateral damage of a legitimate war, but instead it's a genocide? It's really the accumulation of all of the acts that South Africa has been describing, and particularly, I think, in the context of Gaza, where it's such a small place physically, and the population has been forced to, to move. They've been forced to move at uh, almost no notice, just drop everything and you know everyone go down to the south, cutting off the water, 
preventing aid from getting into civilians. Um, there was a lot of emphasis placed on that and the difficulty that aid is having getting through all the checkpoints and so on and so forth, the way Israel's made it almost impossible for aid to get in, creating conditions close to famine in Gaza, creating conditions where we're seeing a huge spread of infectious diseases and then things like bombing hospitals and making it impossible for anyone to get medical aid. It's the accumulation of all of these acts together, which South Africa contends amounts to a genocide. So it's not simply that there have been bombing campaigns that have civilian casualties, because we've seen that happen plenty of times previously, unfortunately, in the context of Gaza and Israel. The difference here is all of these additional acts that are preventing anyone really from from surviving or thriving. Even the destruction of education institutions, for example, there are no universities left in Gaza. All of these things are, South Africa says, designed to essentially grind Gaza into the dust and destroy it. So what can the court do then? You, d- you mentioned that this process could take years, but can the court do anything more immediately than that in relation to this war? Yeah, it can. So what we have uh, going on at the moment is called a provisional measures hearing. This is an emergency hearing where the court is seized of a matter and is told, look, if you don't step in straight away, the situation on the ground is going to get so bad that it won't matter what you order down the track. There will be nothing for you to make orders about because it will be gone or destroyed. So we've had, uh, to give a very basic example, let's say that you've got uh, two states and there's a river that sits on the border between those two states. And one state wants to dredge the river change its course. And the other state says that's going to cause a huge amount of environmental damage. And by the by, that river belongs to us. In that kind of a situation, the court can step in and say, okay, no dredging, no one do anything until we've sorted out who the river belongs to and you know whether the environmental damage is so bad that it's going to breach various international obligations in respect of the environment. Here, of course, you have a situation on the ground that is so extreme. We, we, we are faced with a, a humanitarian catastrophe taking place in Gaza. There's, there's probably no question that the court is going to step in and make some kind of order along the lines of not necessarily a full ceasefire, but, you know, make sure that aid is allowed in, turn the water back on, um, you know, protect civilians, all of these kinds of things. It's designed essentially to make sure that the court's eventual orders, whatever those may be, are able to be effective, that the situation hasn't gotten so bad on the ground that there may just well be no court case at all. So Israel is a signatory to the Genocide Convention, which is why it can be part of this case. But if the court does make one of those orders, can Israel just ignore it? Yes. Well, I mean, Russia has, uh, I think, in the Ukraine-Russia case, uh, created this kind of idea of this precedent that states just ignore the court on a regular basis. And the good news is that states don't. States actually almost always follow the orders of the court. They're a highly respected court, very much part of the, the apparatus of the international rule of law. With this case, though, there are two issues. Um, the first is, is it's worth saying, I think that if we get a detailed order saying things like allow more aid into Gaza, that Israel is probably going to go, okay, and just do that. If we get a full ceasefire order, it's not so clear that Israel is going to be okay with that. So it depends very much on the uh, content of the order that the court eventually makes. And the court may have that in the back of its mind, I don't know, but uh, the court may phrase things in such a way as to make it more likely that Israel will comply. 
If Israel goes down the Russia path and just ignores everything that the court has said, well, there's only one mechanism under international law for the enforcement of the court's orders, and that is via the Security Council. So, of course, we immediately run into the same problem that we have with Russia, which is the P5 veto. In this case, it'll be the US who always vetoes uh, resolutions in respect of Israel. So it's not that there's no mechanism under international law, and I think international law sometimes has this reputation for being unenforceable, but there are mechanisms that exist. It's just that in these unfortunate particular instances, they're they're stopped uh, because of those political things happening uh, with the P5. So this is obviously a historic case in pretty awful circumstances, but do you think that the the regular average person in Australia or elsewhere is going to stand up and listen now that this case is where it is? Yeah, interesting question. There's obviously been an unprecedented amount of interest in this case. And I mean, to be frank, not always the reporting around this case is not always super accurate. So there can be some confusion, I think, about what people expect uh, from international courts. I will say, look, you know, the International Court of Justice, it's not a magic bullet. Uh, It's not going to solve all of the world's problems with, with one court order and people need to have realistic expectations. Just like any court, its job is to declare what the law is in a given situation and who's in the right and who's in the wrong. So I think, you know, there's been a huge amount of interest from the general public. I hope that people aren't disappointed with the result because it doesn't immediately change things on the ground. I think we need to temper our expectations here and continue to, um, you know, rely on those additional mechanisms uh, that are going on, including political ones, uh, to make sure that we can see a peaceful resolution to what is happening in Gaza at the moment. Here's hoping that for sure. Juliet McIntyre, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That was Juliet McIntyre, lecturer in law at the University of South Australia. On Friday night, Australia time, Israel will present its defence to the charge of genocide. After that, we can expect an interim order from the court. Then it will be up to Israel and the international community to decide what to do next. Listener.